0: I want to pick up on this topic of prayer. Last week, we looked at Jesus giving us an emphasis on prayer from a specific angle. He told us about the persistent widow who refused to give up. She kept coming to the judge and, and pleading for justice. And finally, she received it because she wouldn't quit coming. And Jesus wants us to not lose heart. So what we learn about this is a lot about our father. What kind of father do we have? Is he like that, Judge? No, he's not. He is a, a giving father. He, he delights when we come. He's never annoyed. He doesn't give with, with a grumpy attitude. He loves to give. In fact, he does so, Jesus says, speedily so last week on the topic of prayer, we learned that it's important when we pray to, to understand what we think of God, our thoughts of God. This week, Jesus is going to say through these words that we're about to study, it's important as well that we think carefully about ourselves. We need to be aware of, of what we think of ourselves when we pray and how we come before this great God of ours. So I titled the sermon, Boasting or Bowing? Boasting or Bowing? We're in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17, and uh would like to just ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word, if you would pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you provide through the work of your spirit, even now as we seek to study and understand your word. You, you open our eyes to know and, and, and understand these tremendous truths, unchanged throughout time, kept, preserved, sustained, and, 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 and brought to us for such a time as this. Lord, I pray for all those who have tuned in, wherever they may be at in the world. We know that this, this feed reaches far beyond Whatcom County, and we're grateful for that. We pray even now as we look together at these words that you would work. Move in power, we pray. Open our eyes, bring salvation, grow us, strengthen us, and place our feet on the rock who is Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with the first verse here of of our study today. Verse 9, Jesus takes up uh, the work of confronting the self-righteous. He's after uh, this this teaching segment is going to address a specific group of people, those self-righteous in the crowd. Listen to how Luke sets this up. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those in the crowd who were listening to Jesus, various different people, but Jesus saw all of their hearts He could understand where they were, not just with their words or their body language, like we may uh, discern, but he saw all the way into them. He could see their hearts. And he noticed that there were people in the crowd, namely Pharisees, most likely, who were trusting in themselves, or at least those who were under the influence of the Pharisees. They were looking to their own own equation, what, what they bring to the table, and they were placing their trust there and they were also treating others with contempt. It's fascinating how legalism functions. Friends, legalism is a toxic poison that is so natural to us. It is, it is, we are, we are just inclined to this kind of thought process. The formula for legalism is works equal worth. Or doing is, is what you bring about with deserving. It's if you do, then you deserve. If you work, then you're worthy. And that is how the Pharisees were operating. They saw this that way. It's performance salvation at its core. It's religion, as it were. The religion of the world, really. Every other world religion. Do we, do we feel this? Every other world religion functions similarly. Similarly except for Christianity. Every other world religion, you are what you do. You you have to perform. You have to do things to appease the deities or to appease God. But not so with biblical Christianity. It's not a performance salvation that is offered here in the pages of God's Word. And Jesus the Savior himself repeats this over and over and over. His preaching ministry came back to this point again and again because it was such a problem in his day as it is in our day. Self-righteousness and contempt. Now, these are fascinating things to see go together, the word righteousness and contempt. How does it happen? How does it unfold? Well, if I do something that I think is noteworthy or praiseworthy or good, then I feel good about myself. And inevitably, if I begin to feel good about myself, then it leads to a, a little bit of a, a pep in my step, a little pride, a little, a I little, uh, huh, feel pretty good. And, and then I try to look around and say, well, well, who else is doing what I'm doing? And when I see people who are not measuring up, to the degree of, quote-unquote, righteousness that I have worked to achieve, well, then I begin to look down on them. And it may start subtle. It it may be just a a quiet thought. Or it may be a silent judgment. But it will often grow. And the, the Pharisees, they were defined by this kind of attitude. Jesus wants to get down to it. And so he tells this parable. And he is speaking right at the people in the crowd that he sees hearts that are riddled with this and he goes right to them. These are very blunt and direct words. And friends, we should be aware that some of these words may address us as well. These words are not just a past tense experience. We here today, we need these words. All of us need these words. It begins by contrasting two sinners in prayer. Two sinners in prayer. This is what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now, just stop right here because culturally we've got to enter into this. We know because of our gospel of Luke that Pharisees were those who were so highly esteemed in this day. These men, they were righteous in, in minutiae. They worked hard to keep the law. They went beyond the law to create their own added uh, litany of laws and traditions and things that they could do, couldn't do. And then they worked really hard to hold everybody else to do the same. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a tax collector, the most hated and reviled of all in Israel. They were seen as traitors. They were looked down upon, seen as un able to be saved so bad they were such horrible sinners that they were beyond the reach of salvation god himself could not save a tax collector was the widely expressed view of the day the reality is that the the tax collectors were they were terrible people they were swindlers and thieves and they were extortioners and they were uh, many times uh, behind force to make the people pay added taxes, and patting their pockets as they uh, served the Romans and betrayed their own people. So we know this, right? Tax collectors, despised. So Jesus tells this of these two men who then go up to the temple to pray. Now, the temple, in the morning and in the evening, there were sacrifices offered. And around these sacrifices, people would come and pray. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, The sacrifices were uh, pointing to the need for people's uh, shedding of blood and and covering for their sins, and and so they would come and pray. And typically in the evening, you would have a larger gathering, and so that tended to be the, the, the time when the Pharisees loved to go and pray. It's likely that we have an evening sacrifice taking place here. And you see this picture here. Uh, the steps of the temple right here right behind me here these are the actual steps today that that exist these would have been the steps that these two men have walked up these were the steps that jesus himself walked up and uh i when we were when we were in israel and as we're getting ready to go to israel with a group from from here we've got about 12 people signed up by the way i'm excited i can't wait to go We are going to be sitting, this is our group, and in February of next year, this will be Good Shepherd group, sitting on the very steps where Jesus walked up and down the same stones. And uh, all of the history still there preserved. That was one of the high points of our visit to Israel and time in Jerusalem. So picture those steps. They're coming up into the court of Israel to pray. It's in the evening. And here is the prayer of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, Jesus says, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You begin to get a feel for this this Pharisee, now the fast required of Israel was once a year, the Day of Atonement. This man says, oh, once a year, that's for the losers. No, if you're really pious, if you're really serious and righteous like me, well, you fast twice a week, twice a week. Usually, it would be during the days where you could be in public most, so you could wander around and show people, oh, I'm fasting, I'm, whole. I'm so holy and righteous, I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the Pharisees took this seriously into the minutia, literally counting the seeds of of the mustard plant in their tithes that they would bring, counting them out, showing how precise they were in wanting to uphold the laws and going far beyond with their own. What a fascinating quote-unquote prayer this is few things that we observe about this man he is standing now just to be clear standing in this day was the normal form of prayer this was not outrageous this is not out of place to stand and pray was how the faithful jews would pray in this day but there's something unique here he's he's by himself right he's separated from others standing by himself so there's something that we are to pick up in this that he's there standing probably in a very prominent place but he is staying away from the others who he considers less than. Stained with sin, morally compromised, and he distances himself. And then he begins in his quote-unquote prayer to compare his works, his righteousness with others in the crowd. Can you imagine something like this happening in church? Imagine the offense taken by words publicly spoken in this way. Hmm. R. Kent Hughes said it this way his self estimate rides on the exposure of the moral failures of others. He feels good about his righteousness by pointing out the less than's in the crowd. Isn't that interesting? That's legalism, friends. That's treating others with contempt, treating them as worthless. Looking down upon others and thinking much of yourself. Legalism has a bent toward finding security through comparison. And friends, I wish I could just say it was this make-believe Pharisees problem, but it is not. It is, it is instinctual. It's in us. It, is in, it happens in churches. It may be happening even today. As you think, and you hear these words, be careful, be aware, friends. It's not just out there, it's in here. It's in here. How easy it is for us to find security. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not as bad as this person, or I, I do a better job at this at this person. Well, I've never done that. I mean, you see what we're doing? We do this. We need to catch ourselves. We need to call that what it is. And we need to stop that kind of behavior, repenting of it as sinful. He stands separated. He compares his work with others. And ironically, you know, this is not actually a prayer, is it? It's more of a self-congratulatory monologue. He's, He's basically proclaiming how awesome he is. To God, I guess. He's as much talking to the people out there as he is to God. Maybe it would have sounded a bit like this. Hey, look at me, Lord. I'm sure you'll be impressed. If there was a song on my lips, this is how it would go. Lord, you need me. Oh, you need me. Right? Lord, you need me. Oh, you need me. It's so good that that I'm yours because I can't imagine what you'd do without me. Think about how this happens. It is I, 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 I. Five eyes. His focus is all on himself. He's not coming to the Lord and asking of God. He's not looking to the Lord really for anything. He is simply expressing how good he is in himself. Hmm. That's a problem. On the opposite end of this equation, Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Can you hear those words? Do you hear that? Echo in the crowd just coming. Who is that? Oh, that's a tax collector. But what's he doing up here? Wait, this is not a place for tax collectors. No, but he's, he's pleading for mercy to God. Something's going on in his heart. Something. Listen to him. Hmm. He stands far away. He's ashamed to be in the crowd. In fact, uh, I think it would have been dangerous for him to be in the crowd because of his profession his reputation. The last person you would ever expect to see in the temple was a tax collector. They were barred from worship. They didn't care about the religious system or of righteousness or obeying the Lord. They simply cared about money. They rejected their own people, embraced the Romans, and made all kinds of money. But here this man comes to the temple to plead he is ashamed to look up. He's pounding his chest. He's showing what is, what is glorious of repentance. He feels the weight of his sin, and it shows up in this. He is a sinner pleading for God's mercy. I just have to say here, there are a number of churches that are operating today who would go to a man like this and say, buddy, you've got to knock that off. Right? You're living a defeated life. You need to self-actualize. You need to get your self-esteem up. You got to look up and you know pull up yourself by your own bootstraps and man up a little bit and, and, and self-help a little, right? Come on, man. Self-love, self-heal, self-anything. We live in a day that is intoxicated with. Self. I'm sick of it. Self-esteem, self-help, self-love, self-whatever. I just need to love myself more so I can love other people. No, you don't. We instinctually love ourselves. What we need is a healthy dose of this man's experience. Regularly, friends, when we sin, Does it weigh on our hearts like this? This is contrition. This is Jesus honoring His behavior, esteeming it. This is what repentance looks like. Humble, brokenhearted, Feeling the weight of his sin, he is contrite, he is confessing, he's not downplaying or minimizing his sin or excusing it, he's owning it fully. I am a sinner and I'm pleading, I'm pleading for mercy, pleading for mercy. You could define humility this way, just even in this, own, this text right here that we look at. Humility is the honest assessment of our sinfulness in view of God's holiness. Here's what humility is not. Well, I, I'm, just, I'm just so humble to be able to win this championship and prove that I am the greatest. <laughs> have, have you heard this? Like... I keep hearing these sports interviews and things, and people are using this word in a way that absolutely defies logic. It's just so humbling to be the best, you know, uh, to, just to be able to prove that everyone else is, is, well, really not as good as me. It's humbling. No, that's called pride. That's what it is. It's pride. Now, if you want to say, I'm so grateful that God has given me these gifts and, 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 and that he gave me the opportunity to win so I could give him glory. That's totally something different. We gotta reclaim this word humility for what it is. Humility is not found in comparison on this plane. When I say, well, look at this person, I, I feel like I'm better than them, that's not humility. Humility is when I look up and I say, oh Lord, look at your holiness, look at your righteousness, Look at your perfection, your standard, your purity. I fall short. I am not, and you are. That's humility. It's an honest assessment, an ownership, a full, truth filled assessment of my lack and his perfections. This man, he had a glimpse of God, of his holiness, of his righteousness. He had a glimpse of the weight of his sin and the judgment that he had stored up in his sin. He knew that God is a God who is angry at sinners for their rebellion, their transgression, and sin. He is a God of vengeance and wrath who will bring judgment and justice upon those who have transgressed his law and dragged his image through the mud. He sees this, and he cries for mercy. Gloriously so. The Pharisee cares nothing of that. And churches that fail to preach repentance are damning their congregations to the fires of hell. Jesus preaches repentance. And he loves, he loves as he does. Paul said it this way in Romans 7 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good. I bring nothing to the equation but sin and corruption and darkness and evil. You have to Romans 7 before you can Romans 8. Does that make sense? If we don't Romans 7 first, we will never Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to regularly Be on our knees feeling the weight of our sin confessing in contrition repenting of it and coming to god with it that is the joy-filled experience of the christian life it's what it looks like to walk godly in this world be merciful to me a sinner believers christians these are our words They're not once in a moment in time when I was saved words. These are day by day by day words in repentance. Lord, I see my sin. Thank you for pointing it out. I grieve over it. It's hideous. It's wrong. I don't want it. I'm so sorry for it. I confess it. I bring it to you. I lay it at your feet. Please forgive me. Help me to walk In obedience, I turn toward you, I turn from that sin. We have a great example in this man. The righteousness, justice, and wrath of God are real. So is his compassion, mercy, and grace. We need to see all of this in God. For those who only preach righteousness, justice, and wrath, and they leave out his compassion, his mercy, and grace, they they preach half of God. The Scriptures call us to all of God. But I fear in our day that we have a lot of compassion and mercy and grace without righteousness, justice, and wrath being proclaimed. And we need to have all of this in view. He is glorious in all of these realities. His wrath is is an expression of His just love. It comes against those who sin. Now, commending humble repentance. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you've got to just feel this moment, okay? As Jesus is teaching, <laughs> just put yourself here. The, the people are out there. They're hearing him teach and they are riveted by this comparison. These extreme polar opposites. They're in the temple praying and when he says this, I tell you, this man. W- wait, which man? Wait, the Pharisee? No, 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 no. He's talking about the tax collector. The tax collector went down to his house justified. There would have been a gasp in the crowd people would have been falling over. You're telling me the tax collector was declared righteous by God? Not the Pharisee? That's impossible. The tax collector was declared righteous as he pled for mercy because he humbled himself in repentance before God. Whereas the Pharisee in all of his self-love. He exalted himself and he left without being justified. He was not declared righteous by God. And if he continued in that path, then he would go to the fires of eternal hell. That's how serious this is. We're talking heaven and hell. This is the distinction. Life and death. Justice, mercy, grace, satisfied, you're declared righteous, or justice, wrath, and eternal fire. Here's the thing I, th- I think that we've just got to really feel. This is culturally, we need to feel this. We should be far more surprised by God's forgiveness than we are by His justice and wrath. I, I feel like there's this culturally operating assumption that god just should forgive everybody that that it's just kind of an auto uh, type of thing automatic deal like well of course god is loving and 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 grace-filled and and he's gonna you know pretty much forgive everybody right isn't that what he that's who he is like he's loving and and gentle and compassionate and uh, people are trying their best he's gonna forgive no that anybody is ever forgiven by god should blow our minds ever. When people receive from God justice and wrath, that should be assumed. Well, uh, yeah, true. I mean, sin, right? He's just. He's righteous. He's holy. When we are surprised by His judgment and wrath and not really surprised by His forgiveness and grace, we are far from the reality Of what scripture paints of who God truly is grace should in fact be amazing amazing grace it should blow our minds that God would choose to forgive people like me and you Hmm. the question is how is it possible that he could do this how can God declare a sinner righteous how, a sinner, a tax collector, a, a, a guy like me, a sinner, a rebel, one who deserves the fires of hell, how can he declare someone like me righteous and still uphold his justice and satisfy his wrath? Because he cannot simply say, that's no big deal, I'll just look the other way. I, I, won't, I won't bother, just, you know what, just, we'll just sweep that under the rug. God would not be good, He would not be just, His wrath would not be avenged, His name would not be great, He would deny Himself. The only way that God could do this is if His justice was satisfied and His wrath was poured out on someone else in my place. This is Easter week, friends. This is the journey that we're on in this week. This is what Easter means. This this is what the good news of Jesus Christ is. It means that Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father to come to live and to lay down his life to die the death that I deserve, to pay for the sins that I have committed to suffer under the wrath of God. It's the good news. It's It's good news. Let me read from Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's a big Bible word that we need to know. Propitiation means a wrath-satisfying payment. God put forward Jesus. Jesus. As a propitiation by his blood, he paid in blood what was needed to satisfy God's wrath to be received by us. How? How? By works? By earning it? Deserving it? Being worthy by what we do? No. By faith. By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Like what? Like the tax collector at the temple who cried for mercy and left justified. How? The cross. Those sins that that man, if he was a real man in the the parable that Jesus told, if he was a real man, and many were, right? The tax collector, Matthew himself. The sins that he committed were stored away in that wrath and then on that day, that Good Friday, they were laid upon Jesus, poured out in full in wrath. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier, the the declarer of righteousness of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus. Then Paul says this, and I love it, because it answers the Pharisee. This is the perfect companion text, as, long as, as well as the call to worship that we started our service with. What becomes of our boasting? What about the Pharisee over here who boasts? Where does it go? Paul says, it's excluded. There's no boast here. Does, does the one who cowers in his plea in contrition, in repentance, boast that he is declared righteous? No, he believes. That's what he does. And he says, thank you. Our boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By by works? By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Friends, That is a watershed statement. The Pharisees are damned in that statement. One is declared righteous by God, not by earning it, working to be worthy, doing to be deserving, but by faith, by trusting, by casting oneself totally on the grace of God in faith. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what sets this Bible apart from every other world religion that is practicing this day. It's the good news, friends. I want to close with these final verses commending childlike trust. Jesus moves now into this interaction with children and, and Luke has arranged this material such that it just dovetails so perfectly that really I didn't notice the connection before but this is like another way of of connecting this this argument that he's presenting from Christ. Look at these verses. Now they, the crowds, were were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The crowds were bringing in their, their children and they wanted to have the blessing of the rabbi. Now this was a common desire by parents in the day, uh, to have their rabbi bless their children. But ironically, most rabbis just didn't like to do it. They didn't have time for it. They, they thought of children as not really not worth their time and a distraction and an annoyance, really. Jesus, he's not that kind of rabbi. He is really, truly the, the unexpected rabbi. The disciples Let's begin to shoo these parents away. Get your, your baby out of here. We don't, don't be bugging the teacher. Don't bother Jesus. He's, he's probably too tired to mess with this. He's too busy to deal with you. He doesn't want to bless your kids right now. He's too important. Hmm. What are we beginning to sound like in that kind of Mindset. Maybe something the Pharisee in the last parable would have sounded like. You're not worthy. You're not ready. You're not enough. You're not important enough. Jesus, a different kind of rabbi, says these words. Jesus called the children to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Wow. What an incredible thing for Jesus to say. Let him come. They're important. They matter to this rabbi. They matter to this savior. I got time. Come on, come sit on my knee. Come on, tell me about your day. Let's talk. Let's hang out. To such belongs the kingdom of God. I am always struck by how the Lord can work in young children. God saved me from my sins and brought me to life when I was five years old. That was like 38 years ago. I just celebrated my spiritual birthday this past Friday. 38 years ago, God saved me. I remember it like yesterday. I know the love of Jesus from a young age by his grace. He, he opened my heart to see him. He he, felt, he impressed upon me the weight of my sins, and he turned my gaze to him to see a Savior who loved me. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean? Well, certainly this was an unexpected rebuke for the disciples. They didn't see this coming. But then you've you got to grapple with what he's, what's he saying here? I believe he's saying the exact same thing he's speaking of as he described this tax collector. How does a child come? Faith-filled, trusting, coming to a parent, empty hands, open wide. Help me, Pick me up. I need, I need. I look to you. Coming with childlike faith and trust, looking to Jesus as Savior. Not coming to Jesus to say, hey, are you impressed? Uh, do you need me on your team? No. No. Come like a child. Empty hands. Open wide. Save me. Save me. And you will be saved. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is. And so our response to these things this morning, I just want to ask this question. Are you boasting or are you bowing today? Do you come... When you pray to God like the Pharisee with a list of all of the reasons why He should be impressed with you, all of the things that you've done to try to be good enough, to perform, to do and deserve, to work, to be worthy. Friends, if you are praying a boasting, commending prayer to God to try to earn favor and salvation from Him, You need to allow Jesus in his gentle love to call you from your death trap of legalism and performance religion out of that place and bring you over to pray like the tax collector, to feel the weight of your sin, to see how absolutely lacking our greatest effort is We can't save ourselves. (laughs) We don't have to try to perform and be good enough. We never could. What is the standard? Well, the standard is perfect, no sin. There's only one man that's ever achieved that. That's Jesus himself. He lived a life with no sin so that he could lay his life down and pay for yours and mine. Qualified out of that place so that we could be forgiven. Jesus said this in Luke 5:32. I have not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, the people who are impressed and trusting in their own righteousness and condemning and and treating others with contempt. I didn't come to save people who, who don't need saving, as it were. I came to save sinners. Sinners. People who are coming and crying for mercy. And so, this is the theme song for the believer. This is the theme song of our lives. There's no boast in me. I bring nothing to the table. I come with empty hands, open wide. And I say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. I still need you. You're my one defense. You are my righteousness. Do you see that? Do you see see what I'm saying in this? You are my righteousness. Jesus Christ, every obedience that you ever have is now mine. I look to you to be enough because I know I'm not. Oh God, how I need you. Let's pray. And Father, even now I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be stirring in hearts, opening eyes, feeling, bringing the the weight of our sin upon our soul in such a way that would, would sharpen our reality and call us away from our piddly little performance mirage and bring us into the light of Your Son. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need you. Every hour we need you. We come not to try to impress you with some works of righteousness that we have tried to drum up on our own. What an what a empty effort that would be. We come desperate, needy, broken, contrite, and we look to you in faith. We come like a child. We, we come knowing that you are able to save to the utmost. We come with the promise that you've given, that, that if we believe that we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that even sinners like me can be saved. And, and what an amazing change that accomplishes in our lives. Oh, Father, for all who listen now, I pray that that would be the, the joy, the defining reality of our lives that we can call you our Father, that we can come and know a Savior in Jesus, a living hope, a Savior who has risen from the dead. Lord, we need you. I pray that you would stir and move and bring life, land these words both for those who, who don't know you before this, make them yours today, cause them to live even now, help them to choose repentance and to run to Jesus in faith for salvation even now. And for all who have already done that, Lord, make this a more practiced daily experience, not to be saved all over again every day, but to deal rightly with our sin, to lay it at your feet, to feel sorrow for it, to to ask for your forgiveness to be applied afresh through the work of Jesus and his, his accomplishment on our behalf. And a turning from sin, to obedience, to walk with You. Oh Lord, we need You. Thank You for being a God who forgives those who don't deserve it. We praise You, we worship You, and we enter now into this week to feel and experience once again the the journey of our Savior Jesus as He walked that road of obedience to You to accomplish our salvation Be glorified, we pray. Be more delighted in in our hearts this week as we walk this journey together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.